Now come to our first Bible reading this morning, which is uh, Genesis chapter 1. We'll be reading from uh, uh, verse 1 through to verse 5. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to dive into our second reading this morning, 1 John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. And this is how the letter begins. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship with is, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to you to make our joy complete. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what we learn from it. Thank you for what you teach us. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes, would you open our ears that we might hear and listen and learn and apply this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we completed this series in 1 John at the Kirk uh, late last year and discovered and, and rediscovered so many great truths there that I thought, even just as a one-off, even if I were just to do one uh, sermon from this series, it would be worthwhile to, to come back to it. As we begin, let's, uh, let's just sort of set the scene a little bit for this letter. Uh, 1 John was written between 80 and 90 AD, so this makes it about 60 or so years after Jesus, and John is probably in his late 90s by now. He's the last remaining apostle, and he, he focuses on, on three main themes throughout his letter. First is the theme of fellowship, which we've sort of already picked up in those last couple of verses. A fellowship that we have with God and a fellowship that we have with one another. The other major themes, as you continue to read this letter, and I encourage you, if, if you haven't read it in a while, um, read it, read it through this week. It's a, it's a fantastic letter. And, and the other themes that you'll pick up are this mega theme of God is light and God is love. And you've probably recognized this already, but there is something strange about this letter when you consider the other epistles in the New Testament. There's something strange. There's something not here. It's never actually revealed who the author of this letter is. Not here, not in 2 John, not in 3 John. Though, in 2 John, 
the writer does start referring to himself as the elder. Isn't that a cool nickname to give yourself? The elder. I like it. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but it would be strange, wouldn't it, to get a letter in the mail or an email into your inbox that doesn't actually say who it's from. It wouldn't be very helpful, would it? We'd be left wondering, well, well, who is this letter from? What's, what's the purpose of this letter to me? And, and what's the context? Can I trust it or not? Can I trust the information that's within it? And here, there are none of the usual introductions that other New Testament letters give. Peter and Paul, they, they begin each of their letters explaining who they are, introducing themselves, explaining why they are writing. But a large portion of scholars and and tradition as well are pretty biased to this actually being the Apostle John. So so that's what I'm going to run with, that this is indeed John the Apostle writing, though there there is debate. So if we do run with that, then the next question is, well, who is John the Apostle? Who is this man? Well, if you can think back to your memories of the Gospels, you'll know that John is one of Jesus' 12 disciples that Jesus called to follow him. More than that, Jesus was also one of Jesus' inner circle. Do you remember Jesus' inner circle, the, the three disciples who were a part of it? Peter, James, and John. And on top of this as well, John is then described as the disciple that Jesus loved. That's that's something special, isn't it? The disciple that Jesus loved. Who, Who would you say is your closest friend? Who is the first person you think of when you're in trouble and you need help? Who's the first person you want to tell when something great happens? Who's the first person or who's the the person you trust more than anyone else in your life in this world? For me, and I hope it's the same for all you husbands out there, for me it's my wife, Sophie. She is my best friend. She knows me better than anyone else. There is no one in this world who knows me like she does. It's often very scary. To add to that, Sophie's also a psychologist, and people often wonder if she can read minds. She denies that. But I have to say, the way that she can apparently read into my mind proves that she knows me possibly better than I know myself. In Jesus' life, who was his best friend? Who was the person who likely knew him best? Well, if all that we've been saying is accurate, likely that person is this man, John. And this should speak volumes, right? I mean, what does it say of John and the man he was that Jesus would choose him to be his closest friend, his his closest confidant. We first meet John in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is walking along, is just starting his earthly ministry, he's walking along the shores of, of Galilee, and John's on the shoreline with his brother James. 
They've just been on a fishing trip and Jesus calls them to follow him. And what do they do? They immediately drop their nets and follow. You know, John is all in with Jesus from the very beginning. He stays with Jesus throughout his ministry and he's there at the very end when Jesus dies. But he wasn't always this this wise and loving elder that we have here in these epistles. Mark chapter 3 verse 17 tells us that James and John together had a nickname. Do you remember what that nickname was? The Sons of Thunder. I wonder how we can read that. They were called the Sons of Thunder. What should that tell us about them? Probably that they were really obnoxious, really loud, and very direct. That's what I'm guessing. And who gave them this name? Jesus did. Jesus applied that name to them. I wonder, can you relate to this? Are you a possible son of thunder yourself? Is this who you are? As an example of how appropriate this name was, on a trip through Samaria, Jesus and the disciples were having a tough time trying to minister to a village. And James and John were growing frustrated and angry. So they go up to Jesus and they say to him, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? True story. What does this say about them? That they not only thought that Jesus would be okay with this idea, but that they'd also be the ones who'd be capable of pulling this feat off, this miracle off calling down fire from heaven. You know, they wanted this Samaritan town to be the next Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, they're passionate. Yes, they're committed. They stay with Jesus. But Jesus needs to teach them some love and grace, right? If you'd consider yourself a son or a daughter of thunder, if you're passionate, if you're committed... Is grace and love perhaps what Jesus needs to work on in you? James and John also got on the wrong side of the other disciples as well. When they tried telling Jesus one day what to do. In Mark chapter 10, they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, we want you to do whatever we ask. That's a great start, isn't it? They go on. We want you to set up thrones on either side of yours in glory. You know, you, you, can, you can keep the middle one, but we'll take the other two. This is, this is so obnoxious, so clueless, it's almost funny, isn't it? But if you're anything like me, we also like to try telling Jesus what to do, don't we? We try telling him how things should be. Jesus, let me do my thing. Just just step aside. Just pave the way. Let me do my thing. And we'll actually get somewhere. All by himself, this is exactly who John is. But then he spends three years walking with Jesus. He spends three years hearing him teach, seeing how he loves people, and he becomes the only disciple left at the cross when Jesus is crucified. 
the one Jesus then asks to take care of his mother. The day Jesus rose from the dead, who's the first apostle at his tomb? John is. Why? Because Jesus is his best friend too, and he wants to see Jesus. And who was the first of the apostles to see Jesus and recognize him as Jesus when he rose again? John. Because he loved Jesus, so he knew Jesus. And after Jesus ascended into heaven, he spent the rest of his life caring for the early church. He becomes a pillar of the early church. He becomes the elder held in high regard throughout the Christian community, throughout the known world. Tradition tells us that they also tried to kill John. That they tried to boil him alive in oil. Can you imagine that? If this is true, I, I don't know how he survived, but he did. And I can't imagine the scars or the pain that he would have lived with for the rest of his life. And then they exiled him to Patmos. What happens there? Jesus again chooses John to reveal the end of all things to him. And John writes it all down in the letter of Revelation. He was Jesus' best friend, and Jesus was his. And this is John. So the next question is, do we trust this guy? You know, when it comes to the things of Jesus, can we trust him? Yeah, we can. And this is, this is his starting point as he begins this letter. He begins by declaring himself to be trustworthy. Read with me again verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have, have touched... This we proclaim concerning the word of life. That which was from the beginning. We've heard that phrase before, haven't we? It's an echo, isn't it? We heard it all the way back in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. John wants us to think of that when we read this. And then in the New Testament, John first uses this idea in his gospel, John 1.1, to proclaim the divinity of Jesus, to, to raise Jesus up to God's status. He says there, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus. And this is a huge statement, isn't it? He's going back to Genesis saying that God was the only one at the beginning. He's the divine creator and sustainer of all things. And then in his gospel, he's, he, 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 he brings new information saying that the word was with God, actually. And indeed was God. When he speaks of Jesus and he says that in him, the word or Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. And so he follows that up. He keeps building on that. And here in 1 John, he says, that which was from the beginning. Who's that? God. 
the word, Jesus, the life. He says, well, we've actually seen him. You know, that, that's John and the other apostles. We, we've heard him. We've, we've touched him with our hands. Why is John starting his letter here? Why is this important? Well, a crisis had risen up in the church. Teachers were visiting churches and preaching a different message from that of the apostles. And one of the markers of the new teaching was that they denied that Jesus was, was fully human and fully God. It was, um, it was probably an early version of, of Gnosticism. And traditionally, Gnostics believed that they had some special knowledge, one that told them that all physical things were bad and spiritual things were good. Doesn't sound too horrible, does it? It's a fallen world after all. But when it comes to Jesus, they had no choice then to deny the incarnation. Because if, if God were to take on flesh and become a, become a physical man, then he would have been tainted somehow. He would have, he would have made himself bad. Because only spirit is good, so he must have remained only spirit. And if he was only spirit, then he couldn't have died for our sins. So then, how does salvation happen? Do you see the beginnings of the problem with Gnosticism? So a point had been reached where these teachers had left the church and set up their own group. Maybe a bit like today's cults, like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses. But though they had left the church, they were still in contact with it and trying to influence it. So John needs to remind people, his people, his children in Christ, his children in Christ, that, the, that as the last remaining apostle of Christ, he was the one with true authority. And he wrote to them to state clearly what the true gospel was as handed down by the apostles. You know, the, the, the Gnostics, he, he was thinking in his frame of mind, the Gnostics seem to think that they have a special knowledge. Well, John says, how about this knowledge? We actually were with Jesus. We actually walked with him all those days and years. We actually heard him preach the Sermon on the Mount. We heard him declare a blind man healed. He's saying, I saw Jesus walk on the water. I saw Jesus on the cross. I saw him die. And then when Jesus had risen again, I actually touched him. A physical body with nail marks and a spear scar in his side. You know, John's throwing the gauntlet down here saying, the, saying to the early church, who are you going to believe? Me or those other guys? I saw him transfigured on the mountain with Peter and James. I took care of his mother after I watched him physically go back into heaven. He was my best friend. Who are you going to believe? It's a compelling argument, isn't it? It's why today as a church we, we follow scripture. We study the New Testament. We go to the letters and the teachings of those same apostles. 
because we're choosing who to believe. We're choosing to follow the people who actually follow Jesus himself. And we're taught by Jesus himself. So we look at John's letter and we feed on it because of who John was, one of Jesus' closest disciples, perhaps his best friend, perhaps the person who knew Jesus the best. And when someone comes to us with a new teaching, we ask, okay, what are your credentials? Where did you get that from? And can you, can you direct me to it in Scripture? Paul says this in his letter to the Galatians. He says, saying that even if, a, if an angel from heaven brought a different gospel to the one the apostles preach, we should reject it. Read verse 2 with me. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. John says the creator, the word of life, the word that gives life was made manifest. This is the incarnation. Defending against the Gnostics, John declares the incarnation really happened. Jesus is fully man. Christ is fully God. And together he is Jesus Christ, the God-man, and he is real. The eternal divine who is with God and was God entered into this world and put on flesh and revealed himself to us. Flesh isn't good, isn't bad. God saw it as precious enough to die for. So let's make one thing very, very clear this morning. There is a very crucial difference between being unworthy of God's grace and being worthless. Amen? Very crucial difference. We are not worthless. The spilt blood of Christ testifies that we are precious. And this should give us at once a great boldness and a great joy as well as a profound humility as children of God. And what's John's hope for the church that he's writing to? Read with me verse 3. He says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, not with the Gnostics, not with those who deny Jesus as God and man, with us, the apostles, and our fellowship, that's the apostles' fellowship, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What other fellowship could we ask for or want? John and the apostles had a, had a deep and real fellowship with Jesus, with God, their creator and savior. And this is, this is his pastoral heart for the church that we too would have a deep fellowship with God, our creator and savior. That we wouldn't depart from the one and only gospel, that we wouldn't depart from the one, from one another or from Christ. He wants us to have fellowship with him and the apostles, which is also fellowship with God. True Christian fellowship, you know, it, it possesses both a vertical and a horizontal as, aspect, doesn't it? You know, horizontally, we're, we're called to meet with one another. We're called to love one another. We're called to care for one another and pray for one another and serve one another. 
We're called to live in community with one another. But there's a, there's, and there's the vertical. We are connected with God, the Father and the Son. How? Through the work of the one Holy Spirit within us, granting us the gift of faith. The Holy Spirit isn't, isn't mentioned here directly, but we know the Trinity is an apostolic teaching. So we know that the Holy Spirit is present and indeed makes all these things possible to you. Jesus himself said he would send the Holy Spirit and he was the, he was the, the he, excuse me, and he was first poured out on the apostles and believers in that upper room. And this unity of fellowship was something close to Jesus' heart as well. Remember what he prays in John chapter 17. He says, I pray, and this is a, a most profound prayer. He says, I pray that they will be one, you and me. Just as you and I are one, that's him and God. As you are in me, Father, I am in you. And may they, the apostles and those who follow the apostles, those who have fellowship with the apostles, and may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Isn't isn't this just mind-blowing? Jesus was thinking of us when he prayed this prayer with his infinite divine sight looking through the ages he saw all future believers he knew we would one day be his followers and he prays for us for you and me to be united to have fellowship with one another and with him and additionally this fellowship isn't meant to be for our own benefit our unity and oneness is meant to be, did you catch that at the end of his prayer there, is meant to be a gospel witness to the world also. Jesus prays so that the world will believe that you, God, sent me. Our fellowship, or lack thereof, proves or denies the gospel to the world. We have genuine fellowship, horizontal, excuse me, horizontal and vertical, with Jesus, the Father, and with one another. Then we are going to have a real relationship with each other, and we'll want to make a difference where we go, not just you know individually, but together as a united church body, as a united family. This is this is my hope and prayer for for the Kirk, and it's. Same for Ulverstone as well. Does our fellowship with one another and with the Lord cause in us a desire to witness to the world together? Final point. Read verse 4 with me. We write this to you to make our joy complete. Joy is meant to be ours. Isn't that great? Fullness of joy, complete joy. This isn't possible this side of heaven, I know. know, but, But John is looking beyond this life. You know, he's looking to heaven with the triune God and with one another. Our our full, complete fellowship will bring about perfect joy. 
Psalm 16, verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It is to that ultimate end that he who was from the beginning stepped out of heaven and walked the land. It is, it is to this end that we might have full, complete joy. Isn't that wonderful? The apostles' teachings down through the generations, through the early church, to us here today and on into the future, its purpose was and is to ensure a true fellowship with one another, based on fellowship with the Father and the Son, which issues in fullness of joy. Isn't it a precious thing that our religion, that our faith is ultimately about joy? Full and complete. Now God plans things. He works things with his glory and our good, our joy in mind. What a beautiful, lovely thing about Christianity. As we close, what is it that John would have the church take away? Firstly, in these verses, we see that John wants to protect us from false gospels and wants to remind us of the true gospel. Specifically here, that Jesus is both God and man. That the incarnation is a crucial belief of Christianity. Christmas time, what we preach at Christmas time, what we share with our friends, our families, our colleagues at Christmas time, what the details of that Christmas story is, is absolutely crucial. Let's not let it go that Jesus is both God and man. The incarnation is true. You know, some would have us believe that Jesus was only a man. Others would have us focus on his divinity. No, he was both. And he did this intentionally as a way to save us. It needed to happen this way for the cross to be effective. And secondly, John invites us to have fellowship with God and with each other and says, this will be like a taste of heaven. He's saying, stand with us, the apostles who knew and saw and heard Jesus. And he's saying, you know, draw together, be united to each other and to Christ. And third point, may this fellowship be a gospel witness. May the world see our joy. And may we look forward with eager expectation to the day when our joy will be fully completed at the end of all things. C.S. Lewis writes of joy, that which, if it could be prolonged here, would be a truancy, is like that which, in a better country, is the end of ends. Joy is the serious business of heaven. And so after all of life's challenges and heartaches, may we as a church, as children of God, remain united and faithful witnesses. And one day we will stand together and watch as the gray curtain of this world is pulled away and heaven will unfold, stretching out into eternity where the, where the sky is so big and more clear and beautiful than anything our eyes could ever imagine. And we'll stand by the glossy sea and worship the resurrected Jesus high and lifted up with angels and elders and living creatures, powerful and terrible in their beauty, and we'll all be proclaiming holy, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
and will gather around his table as he breaks bread, and our fellowship will be complete, and full joy will be ours, and all glory will be his, and the most painful cross will be a distant, joyful memory. A single day there will swallow up our sorrows, every painful, grief-soaked tear will be wiped away. As Samuel Rutherford once wrote, blessed is the soul whose hope has a face looking straight out to that day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for those in the pews beside us. Please unite us and bind us together. And may we continually look to our hope in heaven. Amen.